Well, you know, you know, I actually dress up this way so that people will stare. Yeah. Really, and I love it. I love it, and I think I'm sending out a, a positive energy. And I, I rarely, I never actually have a bad time. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, some people might say something or scream something, but they actually, they actually are loving me, even if they say it positive or negative. Mm -hmm. They actually, and if someone has a problem with it, the problem they have isn't with me. It's actually with what the, the me they see in themselves. Is Middle America ready for you? You know what? Mid America is ready for me, and they're going to have to be ready for me if they're not ready or not. I mean, what what I am is I'm a result of a change that's happening, and if I don't, if they don't get me, the change is still going to happen mm -hmm. without, with or without me. Learn how to love yourself, mm -hmm. no matter what, whether you know. And once you do love yourself, you don't have to be putting nobody else down because you're not yeah. it, you're not threatened by them. Right? I mean, the only people who would ever be threatened by me is someone who doesn't really know themselves or, or doesn't know what's inside of themselves, you know. Welcome back to another fabulous episode of Town Hall, a Black Queer podcast with your hosts, Bob the Drag Queen and me, Peppermint. Today, we have part two of our very special episode on drag history. Now, we will be furthering our journey through drag history, focusing on the incredible figures and moments that have shaped the drag community from the 70s to present day. Yes, Peppermint, that is absolutely correct. And we cannot wait to delve into the vibrant and groundbreaking stories that have made drag what it is today. Let's kick things off by listening to an iconic figure from the 1970s and 80s, Peppa La Beja. I've been a man, and I've been a man who emulated a woman. I've never been a woman. I've never had that service once a month. I've never been pregnant. You know, I can never say how a woman feels. I can only say how a man who acts like a woman or dresses like a woman feels. I never wanted to have a sex change. That's just taking it a little too far, you know. Because if you decide later on in life to change your mind, you can't. Once it's gone, it's gone. A lot of the kids that I know, they got the sex change because they felt, oh, I've been treated so bad as a drag queen. If I get a pussy, excuse the expression, I'll be treated fabulous. But women get treated bad. You know, they get beat. They get robbed. They get dogged. So having the vagina, that doesn't mean that you're going to have a fabulous life. It might, in fact, be worse. You know, so I've never recommended it, and I myself would have never, ever got it. And I'm so thankful that I was that smart. Because right about now, this next 40 or so years that I'm going to be here, I'm going to live. And for those children that can't take the fact that I still look youthful, ha, suffer. No bags, no lines. Lovely. Papala Beija was an absolute force, is an absolute force in the drag and ballroom scene. Uh, she emerged during a time when drag balls were becoming a very vibrant expression of identity for LGBTQ plus people of color. Now, Pepper used drag in a way, as a way to explore gender expression, challenging societal norms, and redefining beauty and femininity. And it was all about being fierce and glamorous and unapologetically themselves. And 
Pepper LaBeja was a founding member of the legendary House of LaBeja, which we explored in our first episode on drag history. The House of LaBeja was the first of its kind and one of the most influential houses in the ballroom scene. The house system provided a sense of community support and competition for LGBTQ plus individuals, especially black and brown queens that faced the most marginalization. Through their participation, Pepper LaBeja showcased diverse expression of gender identity, shattering preconceived notions of celebrating fluidity. And we can't overlook Pepper's activism and advocacy for the LGBTQ plus community. They fought tirelessly for equality, creating safe spaces and combating discrimination. Pepper understood that drag was more than just performances. It was a platform to address social issues and be a voice for those who were often unheard. And let's not forget the legacy that they left behind in the terms of gender expression. Pepper's performances blurred the lines between femininity and masculinity, allowing for a multitude of creative and transformative presentations. And they proved that gender is a spectrum and that everyone deserves the freedom to express themselves in their own unique way. Baby, Pepper LaBeja's story reminds us that the power of drag is a tool for self-expression, a way to break free from societal constraints, and a celebration of the beauty and diversity within gender expression. This is what generally sometimes I do, is I make my hand into a form like a compact or makeup kit. And I'm like beating my face with blush, shadows, or whatever to the music. Then usually I'll turn the compact around to face that person, meaning like almost like my hand is a mirror for them to get a look. Then I'll start doing their face because what they have on their face right now needs a dramatic makeup job. Like break dancing, the dance takes from the hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt. It also takes from some forms of gymnastics. They both strive for perfect lines in the body, awkward positions, but it goes one step further. It's starting to make a name for itself, but I want it to be known worldwide, and I want to be on top of it when it hits. I want to take voguing not to just Paris is burning, but I want to take it to the real Paris and make the real Paris burn. Okay, y'all. That was the legendary drag queen, dancer, choreographer, model, uh, face of, honestly, the global face of Vogue way before Madonna, uh, Willie Ninja. Original name, William Roscoe Leake in 1961 in New York City, as they were born. Uh, Willie would go on to become a trailblazing figure in the voguing and ballroom scene, leaving an incredible mark on the world of drag and honestly, the world of house music. You know, if you were lucky enough to be alive in the 1990s, uh, watching sort of the fusion of styles, sort of black music with white music and black music with white industry, frankly. Uh, and the advent, not the invention, but really the advent of music video as a serious tool for promoting and spreading music, right? Uh, kind of the standard in the 90s 
in the late 80s, early 90s, music videos became really the probably the gold standard for, for people consuming music videos. You know, we watch music videos these days on clips and things like that. But I would say that, like, music videos were what streaming is today. Um, and Willie Ninja was in a lot of music videos. Willie Ninja was hired as dancer and choreographer to travel around the world and really teach Vogue to people all over the world, especially Japan. And I think Willie had a soft space uh, in his heart for, for Japan and Japanese culture. Anyway, Willie's rise to drag fame began in the 1980s when he started uh, the House of Ninja, which was known for being multicultural for its Asian and martial, martial arts influences. And, you know, I think the House of, House of Ninja definitely became known as the, really the assassins of the ballroom scene. I think Willie even talked about that before um, on videos and you can see some old clips. Uh, and they, you know, it was like the House of Ninja for a while, like on top, as far as I know. I have to check with my um, ballroom counterparts to, to get some confirmation on that, but that's my belief. Now, it's important to give some context here, right? The 1980s and the 90s were a time of immense struggle for our community. The AIDS epidemic wreaked havoc, claiming countless lives and leaving a trail of grief and heartbreak in its wake. And another kind of component to that's really important is the high rate of incarceration. Our president, President uh, Reagan, started along with his wife and pretty much everybody right after Nixon, uh, uh, an initiative to jail, to criminalize and jail black bodies uh, and a way that was really successful to, to, I believe, disenfranchise people from being able to, from voting. And one of the ways that they were able to do that is to declare a war on drugs at the same time that they were pretty much shipping uh, crack cocaine into our communities. And the connection between incarceration and crack cocaine uh, is really, really key when we're talking about the effect on AIDS and the impact on our community. Because what would happen is they would ship these drugs into, the drugs would make their way into our communities uh, with not much conversation. And these same drugs would not make their way into the white communities in the same way. However, uh, we all know that crack cocaine is, is made from cocaine. Uh, for some strange reason, crack had a larger sentence attached to it in terms of incarceration and punishment than cocaine did, even though cocaine was much more widespread in the beginning. And so folks getting caught with a certain, like a small amount of crack would go to jail for years, which uh, when they were, were declaring a war on drugs, took so many men and women, but primarily men, able-bodied, otherwise able-bodied men out of Black uh, households and the neighborhoods. And so there was a, a lot less partners for women to choose. And at the same time, as addiction was taking its hold on our on the Black community, women who were addicted um, to crack didn't really have, there was also a huge recession in the 80s, so lots of people were out of work. Uh, a lot of women in the Black community who were using uh, crack cocaine and using this substance were um, didn't have any other means of employment. So in comes the age-old profession of sex work, I would say possibly survival sex work. 
And the terms were set by the very few men that were still remaining in the community, which meant that we were not going to be using a condom. And so the AIDS epidemic really exploded in the Black community during that time. It was just a, the perfect, you know, sort of ground for um, for impacting uh, and self-perpetuating AIDS and HIV um, uh, infection and seroconversion. So I digress. This obviously had a huge impact as well on the uh, queer communities in San Francisco and New York and in the larger cities. Uh, And so, like many folks, uh, you know, as I said, the AIDS epidemic had a huge, huge impact on the community. And Willie Ninja was diagnosed with HIV uh, and faced some really, it was just like a harsh reality of the time um, that a lot of people had to deal with. And we lost a lot of fantastic and really, really talented artists during that time. Many of his friends, his loved ones, and fellow performers were lost to this devastating disease. The impact was not only emotional, but also had far-reaching consequences for the artistic and cultural landscape that Willie called home. And honestly, beyond that, you go back and look at some of the tastemakers and and serious creators that were coming out of the 80s uh, and how those voices were just gone suddenly in droves. Uh, I think that people should look at um, AIDS in Black America uh, as a really good resource for people to look at and and learn more about uh, the pathway that AIDS and HIV took through the 80s and 90s as as related to the Black America. Uh, Really interesting. In the face of diversity, Willie Ninja's resilience and strength shone through. He used his platform to raise awareness about AIDS, fighting the stigma and discrimination that surround the disease, Willie became an advocate for safe sex practices and urged his community to come together, support one another, and fight for access to proper health care and resources. Even as the AIDS crisis took its toll, Willie continued to dance, he continued to perform and inspire others with his fierce fucking dance move. He refused to let fear or despair overshadow his love for the art of voguing and drag. See, Willie was known as the godfather of Vogue, right? And he emerged as a prominent figure in the 1980s during the heyday of New York's ballroom culture. He discovered his love for dance at a young age and quickly honed his skills, blending classical ballet with the fierce poses and gestures of the Vogue style, right? Willie's unique style and fierce attitude made him a standout in the ballroom scene. I think that's because of the style of, of, of Vogue and dance that Willie did. It was really, really, really intricate. Until then, Vogue was mostly about, I mean, from what I know, mostly about like poses and sort of act, abstract shapes. But Willie's style in the House of Ninja really, really focused on the intricacies and the detail of telling a story, almost like miming. You know, if you're going to mime, there are ways that, you know, mimes do their thing and you can get the full story and see exactly what it is they're doing with their fingers or their hands or their body because of how much detail they put into it. And Willie possessed that. In the 1980s and the early 90s, um, I am now alive, by the way, just anyone I was born in 86. I am now alive in the world of black queerness. Willie Ninja gained international recognition when he and his dance crew, the House of Ninja, appeared in the groundbreaking documentary Paris is Burning. Yes, that Paris is Burning. The film shed light on the underground world of New York City's ballroom culture and brought voguing into the mainstream consciousness. Willie's talent and charisma captivated audience and he became an icon for the LGBTQ plus community. But it wasn't just on the dance floor where Willie made his mark. He was also an influential choreographer working with renowned artists such as Malcolm McLaren, 
Grace Jones, and of course, Madonna. His choreography for Madonna's Vogue music video became iconic, introducing Vogue to millions of people around the world. Willie's work transcended boundaries, blending the art of dance with elements of fashion, self-expression, and activism. Willie was more than just a performer and a choreographer, though. He was an advocate for the LGBTQ plus community and a beacon of hope for so many people. He used his platform to speak out against discrimination, pushing for greater visibility and acceptance for queer individuals in society. And Willie's artistry and activism really paved the way for future generations for drag queens and voguers and ballroom performers. Sadly, in 2006, we lost this incredible talent when Willie Ninja passed away at the very young age of 45 due to complications from AIDS. But his legacy lives on. His impact on the world of drag, dance, and the LGBTQ plus community cannot be overstated. Willie's fearlessness, creativity, and unwavering spirit continued to inspire performers today. Well, you know, you know, I actually dress up this way so that people will stare, yeah. really. And I love it. I love it. And I think I'm sending out a, a positive energy. And I, I rarely, I never actually have a bad time, mm -hmm. you know. You know, some people might say something or scream something, but they actually, they actually are loving me, even if they say it positive or negative. Mm -hmm. They actually, and if someone has a problem with it, the problem they have isn't with me, it's actually with what the, the me they see in themselves. Is Middle America ready for you? You know what? Mid America is ready for me, and they're going to have to be ready for me if they're not ready or not. I mean, what what I am is I'm a result of a change that's happening, and if I don't, if they don't get me, the change is still going to happen mm -hmm. without, with or without me. Learn how to love yourself, mm -hmm. no matter what, whether you know. And once you do love yourself, you don't have to be putting nobody else down because you're not, it, you're not threatened by them. I mean, the only people who would ever be threatened by me is someone who doesn't really know themselves or, or doesn't know what's inside of themselves you know now you all know that voice that was rupaul the original glamazon who has certainly left a uh i don't know a mark on our community is not even a uh a a, a massive print on this community so let's start at the very beginning shall we RuPaul Andre Charles was born on November 17th, 1960 in San Diego, California, and little did the world know that this little baby was going to grow up and slay the world. RuPaul is quite possibly, un undeniably, the most famous drag queen in the world. RuPaul's journey to stardom wasn't exactly a bed of roses. He faced his share of challenges, but his tenacity and charisma helped him rise above them. He got his start in Atlanta, whoop, 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 whoop where he performed in local clubs and formed uh, the groundbreaking band uh, RuPaul and the U-Hauls. That was probably like one of six bands that I know about that RuPaul formed <laughs> between Atlanta and New York. But it was in the 90s when RuPaul skyrocketed to fame with his hit single, uh, Supermodel, You Better Work, written by Larry T., a dear friend of mine. Uh, the music video was absolutely everything. I remember watching it and thinking, oh my goodness, who's this? Is this? Is this? Is that, er, you know, uh, Rue was serving us looks for days, darling. Uh, and can we talk about those iconic red locks? Oh, honey, the red look was snatched for the gods. And let's not forget RuPaul's acting chops. I mean, for whatever it's worth. I mean, the Oscar's not there, but the but the imprint is still there, right? Uh, he appeared in movies like Too Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, a staple from my childhood, alongside Wesley Snipes and Patrick Swayze and John Leguizamo. And it was, you know, serving full-on 
face, glamour, and grace on the big screen. And let's not overlook his incredible contribution to reality TV, RuPaul's Drag Race. We cannot have a conversation about drag and not talk about probably one of the biggest things in the history of drag, RuPaul's Drag Race, and how it revolutionized the drag scene and brought our community into the mainstream. It's not just a show. It is a movement, baby. Before RuPaul's Drag Race, RuPaul had the RuPaul show on VH1, which I guess you could kind of consider reality TV. It's kind of like news program. It was a talk show. Uh, and that was groundbreaking because it was, um, it came on in the late afternoon, which was like secondary primetime viewing for after school, probably like three or four o'clock. It was like that Oprah Winfrey time slot. And it was a major network that had this gay black man in, up in drag interviewing top-notch celebrities. Latoya Jackson, for instance. <laughs> okay, just to just to name one of them. Uh, Little Kim. I mean, honestly, with lots of... RuPaul had the divas on. Tyra Banks. You know, all of them. Anyway, RuPaul's Drag Race is... We all know RuPaul's Drag Race. And it has given name to and a rise to so many talented queens, including the two of us, obviously. Uh, it's given us a platform to shine. And it has honestly educated the world about the art form of drag. RuPaul's fierce presence as the host and executive producer has been pivotal in making drag more accessible and celebrated worldwide. Like literally franchise by franchise, RuPaul's Drag Race or Drag Race on every continent. Most of them. <laughs> um, and we, you know, honestly, Ru has mastered the art of keeping us entertained. But let's also acknowledge his advocacy for the LGBTQ plus community. He's an outspoken activist and has used his platform to fight for equality. RuPaul has inspired countless queer individuals to embrace their uniqueness and be unapologetically themselves. His famous catchphrase, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else, has become a mantra for self-acceptance. And RuPaul's Drag Race helped kickstart a surge in visibility and acceptance for queer artists. And that has allowed us to explore our artistry and share our stories on a much broader platform. You know, I, I remember uh, uh, being on set for season eight of RuPaul's Drag Race. And RuPaul low-key famously, like, gets comfortable when he sits behind the desk. It's like, it's like, it's a whole thing. RuPaul wears, like, sweatpants and, and like, slippers. Everyone knows this. But one day we were all just on stage waiting for, um, getting our critiques. And we, we were like, they were like, all right, lunch break. Sometimes the lunch break would happen right in the middle of your critiques. And as we're like getting our critiques, RuPaul just comes from behind the judges booth and goes, I want to let you bitches know I still got it. And she's still in full drag, heels and everything. And she just starts runway walking across the front of the stage, like back and forth. She just keeps being like, like singing her own songs and like strutting and uh 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 back and forth. It was really a, a nice, uh, relief from the scrutiny that is being judged on RuPaul's Drag Race. You know, look, y'all, it's no secret. Like, our appearance on Drag Race has helped us tremendously. It has helped us improve our lives and get a much larger platform and audience, really allowing us to reach a global audience and bring more diversity and representation to the forefront. And it's really important that we continue pushing boundaries and ensuring that all voices are heard. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. Cue the next video.
Given that there was a recent Pew poll that says that most individuals, I think as many as 80% of Americans say that they don't personally know someone who's trans, they're getting a lot of their information about us from these same politicians that are making up this discriminatory language. And so one of the things I would want people to, to know, those who don't know and love someone who's transgender, is that being transgender is very real. And there is no separating uh, trans identity from the individual. And that's why uh, all of these these bans and proposals that target bathroom, fair housing, uh, you know, education, uh, employment, that's why they're so insidious and so dangerous. So trans individuals, we are who we say we are. Trans women are women, trans men are men. And if we can deal from a place of empathy, then that may be a good place to start. The other thing is that we are not out to uh, transgender children are not having surgeries. That's really important to say. There, there's this misnomer that surgeries are being done on young children. That is absolutely not true. In most places, in the in most states in this country, you need to be over the age of 16, 17, or 18 in even in order to even get this type of treatment. Uh, so the treatment that is uh, that tr that doctors are providing is approved and supported by all the major medical organizations. And these doctors are doing it in partnership with the parents of the of the children. And so they're all working together to provide the healthiest uh, options and resources for those children. And unfortunately, these bills are not just about children. They, we, they said they were, but now they're focusing on adults as well and trying to eradicate uh, health care for transgender adults and young folks. And so, uh, you know, it's it's very vague and very messy, but it's really important that you take the time to listen to, to people in the community first. And get to know them. Um, Peppermint, we thank you. Now, let me talk about a very impactful performer in my life, in my career, um, in my day-to-day -day life, quite frankly, our beloved host, Peppermint, or Miss Peppermint. She emerged as a force to be reckoned with in the world of drag. Hailing from Pennsylvania, Hershey, Pennsylvania, Peppermint began her drag journey in the art of drag, performing in local venues, but her talent could not be contained. Peppermint found her way to the vibrant drag scene in New York City as a theater student, uh, like a, a student of dance and theater. And a lot of people in the scene started realizing there is this fierce new queen on the scene that everyone loves. And baby, her name is Miss Peppermint. Now, that's when a lot of New Yorkers fell in love with her, but the world fell in love with her at large in 2017 when she made waves as a contestant on the legendary reality TV show RuPaul's Drag Race in its ninth season. Known for her electrifying performances, lawless fashion sense, and infectious personality, Peppermint captured the hearts of fans worldwide. Now, see, listen, the New Yorkers know Peppermint from a different time. In the 90s, Peppermint took the scene. She was this, like, theater kid on the scene, and everyone's like, who's this girl? She dances, she writes music, she's everything, all the way up through the like to, to the 2000s 2010s you know the 2000 teens she made a staple of being known for like working at basically every single club in new york city and like this is that's barely an exaggeration if you were working on the scene anywhere from the 90s to 2017 not only did you know peppermint but her impact on the scene had directly affected you positively in my opinion now the world at large found out about Peppermint in 2017 when she made waves as a contestant on the legendary reality TV show, obviously RuPaul's Drag Race. It was season nine, and she's known for her electrifying performances, her infectious personality, her bubbly smile, her beautiful face, like uh, the legs for days, her sickening lip syncs. Peppermint captured the hearts of fans worldwide. Now, there's a long history of... Um, 
drag performers on RuPaul's Drag Race. You know, they've 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 been there for for a while. Um, you know, Monica Beverly Hills, uh, Kylie, Sonique Love, so many people. And Peppermint was um, one of the first contestants on RuPaul's Drag Race to compete in this space as an openly transgender woman. You know, a lot of people in New York City we knew Peppermint as a as a trans woman and her experience on RuPaul's Drag Race and talking to her fellow contestants, making sure they know her gender identity and who she is a person had an impact on so many people watching her live in her truth on this show, on the world stage of drag. Beyond her groundbreaking television appearances, Peppermint's influence extends far and wide. She has graced the stages of prestigious venues across the globe, captivating audiences with her mesmerizing performances and spreading her message of self-love and authenticity. From her powerful renditions of iconic songs to fierce fashion choices, Peppermint's star powers continues to shine brightly. Peppermint is also the first openly trans person to originate a role in a Broadway show. This is massive. She's literally Black history, and it does not stop there. She's a passionate activist, using her platform to advocate for LGBTQ plus rights and visibility. She has become an influential voice in the fights for transgender equality, breaking down barriers and challenging societal norms through her art and activism. Her courage and unraving dedication to creating change has inspired countless of individuals around the world, and that includes me. I mean, I might be the biggest Peppermint fan in the whole wide goddamn world. If, if, if Peppermint has one fan, it is me. And if Peppermint has no fans, I am dead, which doesn't happen. That's not even a thing. In addition to her drag persona, Peppermint has also made a name for herself as a talented actress and a singer. She appeared in various theater productions, including the Broadway hit musical Head Over Hills, where she made history as the first openly transgender person to create a principal role in a Broadway show and can be seen currently in Transparent the Musical at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. She has been on shows like pose she has been i mean I, I could be here all day naming this woman's accolades peppermint's impact on the drag world and beyond cannot be overstated with her unapologetic authenticity fierce talent and unwavering dedication to her community she has become a true icon through her artistry and activism she has shattered stereotypes and opened doors for future generations of drag performers so dear listeners Let's give Peppermint her flowers, a true queen who continues to leave an indelible mark on the world and this podcast and on me. One fabulous step at a time. I mean, my uh, like journey into activism was centered around uh, this group I used to be a part of called Drag Queen Weddings for Equality, which led me to this other group called um, Queer Rising. We used to do these demonstrations. We used to do these um like these demonstrations in Times Square every Saturday about mar- about like disparities in the queer community and the straight community. Um, so we would do these full like conversations and like demonstrations and hand out paperwork. And then I started moving into slightly more radical forms of activism with like, getting arrested and blocking traffic. Um, and so that was my beginning with activism. Now that was of course none other then our daring and darling co-host, my partner in crime, sometimes literally, uh, of course, Bob the Drag Queen. Now, born on June 22nd, just last month, uh, 1986, God, such a baby, uh, and raised primarily in Georgia, Bob the Drag Queen quickly rose to fame after winning 
the eighth season of RuPaul's Drag Race. But let's rewind a little bit and uncover the magic behind the legend. Bob's journey into the world of drag started in New York City, where he honed his craft, making waves in the vibrant nightlife scene. I was there, I know. As a performer and as a stand-up, Bob's razor-sharp wit, comedic timing, unapologetic activism set him apart from all of the rest. And, you know, I think Bob continues to be a leader in that way and inspire people because Bob is so unique, you know, if I say so myself. Uh, But it wasn't just talent that propelled Bob to stardom. It was also his infectious personality and fearless pursuit of self-expression. Now, beyond the glitz and glamour, Bob the Drag Queen has become an emblem of advocacy and empowerment and pro-Blackness, pro-Blackness throughout his career. He has used his platform to shed light on important issues, including LGBTQ plus rights, racial justice, HIV AIDS awareness. Uh, I, I think, you know, Bob's activism really started for me when watching uh, witnessing Bob get arrested every single week when they were doing drag queen weddings in uh, Times Square as a way to protest in favor of marriage equality, which had not yet been passed at that time. Uh, and, you know, Bob's a special one. And his activism has taken him across the country performing at Pride events and speaking at rallies and spreading equality and acceptance wherever he goes. Wherever you go, Bob, you're spreading things. (laughs) Now, in all seriousness, let's delve a little bit deeper into the triumphs and challenges that Bob has faced along the way. Now, despite his success, Bob's journey has been challenging. Um, From battling financial hardships to overcoming personal obstacles, Bob's resilience has been an inspiration for many. He raps in his single, Black, get your black ass to the front of the class. If Rosa Parks could see you now, she'd be beating that ass. Uh, (laughs) And to to the front of the class, Bob the drag queen has risen. I mean, Bob is one of the premier drag entertainers in this country, for sure. Oh, I just cracked my neck. Uh, Bob's story teaches us, certainly teaches me, that uh, through determination and self-belief, we can conquer any adversity. And as an artist, Bob continues to push boundaries to redefine drag and inspire countless performers worldwide. Okay? His charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent solidified his place among the drag elite. Like on day one, I knew there was something special about Bob when Bob came to my show and performed. You know, special one there. (laughs) Uh, Now, but wait, all of that, but wait, there's more. In addition to his drag career, Bob has ventured into acting, music, comedy, and podcasting. In addition to all of that and co-creating and co-hosting this podcast, his hilarious and thought-provoking podcast, Sibling Rivalry, co-hosted with fellow Drag Race alum and my niece, Monet Exchange, has garnered a massive following and earned him even more adoration from fans. And his profile is 
just bound to rise even higher, pretty much as high as you can get, uh, with his next project with the living legend herself, the absolute icon, Miss Madonna. I don't know why I say Miss Madonna, just Madonna. And he's going to be hosting her upcoming tour, celebration tour. So if I were you, I would get tickets. But you probably can't because they're sold out, mostly. I don't know if they're sold out, but they nearly are. All my friends got them. So go see Bob on tour and and just heckle that bitch. <laughs> um, let's take a moment, though, to celebrate the impact that Bob the Drag Queen has had on the world. From the stages of Drag Race to the hearts of fans worldwide and to this podcast, this very podcast, his infectious energy and unapologetic authenticity continue to inspire a generation. Now, this is a segment that we're calling Queen on Queen. I had this idea a while back. I thought to myself, I wonder who's the first drag queen I met that I remember her name. And then I'm like, well, who's the first drag queen she met? And who's the first drag queen she met? And like, how far back can we go? Um, And it's just really interesting to me. So let's go into this segment that we're calling Queen on Queen. Black EO is a uh, drag performer uh, based in New York City. And, you know, I met her years ago outside of a bar called Lavish Lounge in Queens that no longer exists, which I find myself saying a lot these days when I talk about places in New York City. I'm like, they no longer exist. That's how you know a New Yorker. When they're like, this place used to be a... Yeah, Starbucks used to be a mom and pop shop. It's giving that, right? But there was a bar called Lavish Lounge, and I, I just Googled it online, and I found out that it was like a 20-minute walk from me. I lived in Long Island City at the time. And I walked over to this bar to see this competition. And there was this queen standing outside having a cigarette. I think she's having a cigarette. I, I feel like I pretty – I feel like I remember her having a cigarette. At least that's the image in my head. And um, inside there were queens like doing karaoke or hosting karaoke or like maybe doing like a drag show or something. And I met her and I was like, hey, is this this the drag show? Like, obviously, right? And she was like, yeah, this is the drag show. And I was was, like talking to her and asking her who she is. And she said, my name is Blackie O. And that's the first drag queen I ever met in person, like spoke to one-on-one actually having a conversation with. And then I came back to the bar and drag. And by the way, I wasn't working. I just came back in drag and was like, I've, I've basically was like, I've chosen a drag name. My name is Kitten with a Whip. <laughs> and I'm like a new queen on the scene. And I remember we were outside with this whip. I used to carry this whip everywhere. And I was like, I'm like, I learned how to crack a whip. And me and me and Black Hill were in the streets in, in um, Woodside, Queens, or I don't know where, where, I think it's probably in Astoria. It's technically in Astoria. In Astoria, in the middle of the street, in the middle of the night, cracking this whip laughing and back and forth having fun and then she just became a, a friend of mine over the years like I, I feel lucky that i got to actually you know get to know her throughout the years first time i met bob the drag queen she was kitten with a whip and uh by this time i had become a drag queen myself and i was hosting a karaoke night but mine was in lavish lounge in queens actoria which we used to call Astoria back in the day, because that was kind of where everybody settled. Uh, It was cheap rent at the time, and you could get a little, you know, waiting job and audition for Broadway and all that. So 
it was a cute night it was lit and we'd have like a bunch of people who were really great singers coming in and uh bob would come in and uh be dressed all in black and have a um whip attached to a belt and i just thought i didn't know the reference to Anne margaret which i think is where she got it from I didn't know the reference to Anne Margaret with the kitten with the whip thing. I just was like, okay, it was a Catwoman reference, I thought, or whatever. But I, it was the irony that this black drag queen had a whip was not lost on me. And I was like fascinated by this bitch. I was like, okay, like, do you know how to crack it? And sure enough, she did. And she, uh, you know, took me outside and taught me how to crack a whip. And that was the first time I met Bob. And, um, you know, I um, have had so much fun with her every time I get to see her. It's kind of, you know, few and far between the times that we get to spend together. But she's a great queen. So the first time I met Peppermint, she was going by the name Peppermint's Gummy Bear. She wasn't just Peppermint yet. She wasn't, um, you know, that share level of famous. But now she's just Peppermint. And we'd love to see it. And she was hosting a karaoke at Excess Lounge. And I was the cocktail waiter for it. And when Peppermint hosted karaoke, it was it was magic. Like, the stage was like a group of egg crates with a, a, a plywood floor. And she made it seem like she was in concert. It was I mean, it was stunning. And, you know, you knew watching her, she just, I mean, she just has it, you know? And uh, after working there for a while, uh, the owner, Tony Giuliano, asked if I wanted to substitute DJ for uh, Peppermint because I think TJ the DJ, who uh, DJed for her, every Wednesday was going out of town or something. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I love, you know, I'd love to do that. And, you know, I was like, this is going to be great. I'd be working with Peppermint or whatever. And at the time, I thought DJing was just, you know, putting in the numbers into the machine that correspond to the song that the person wanted to sing. And you hit the triangular button when you want to start the music and you hit the square button when you want to stop the music. And, uh... Pretty quickly, I learned it was much more than that. Like, uh, technical-wise, you know, Peppermint came back into the DJ booth and asked me, I think after the first person started singing, could I add a little more sweetener to one of the songs? And I was like, girl, we got sugar in the back. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? I, I had no idea what she was saying. She, she knew how to change the reverb on the song how to slow songs down, you know, change keys, all of that stuff. And I was just like, you know, I'm not a sound engineer. Like, girl, I I just, you know, bring people drinks and get money. So uh, that taught me that, well, it's, it's, she definitely has a magic, but she also has a knowledge of how to create an environment, how to create a vibe. She would always come into the space with the energy that she wanted back and that she that she ultimately got back because it was contagious her energy is infectious she um really knows how to create a positive and happy environment 
as well as um, being a stunning performer. So um, that's kind of how I was introduced to her. I knew Blackie out of drag because we worked at the same bar and Blackie had not even thought of doing drag or at least hadn't tried it um, until much later, probably a year or two. And yeah, I remember, I mean, her whole thing, she's, she's evolved now for sure, but her whole thing was really a take on Jackie Onassis, uh, President Kennedy's, John F. Kennedy's wife. And so she wore like the pillbox hat and like the whole look, like the whole suit, but she was like basically Jackie O, but black version, Blackie O. Um, But even back then, that name was a little like, oh, I think people like white people were afraid to say her name. That's my opinion, except for the, except for the, except for the uh, white guys that worked at the bar and they'd be like, Blackie. (laughs) And it was like, oh, wait, you know, anyway, Uh, but Blackie is a, a dear friend and a wonderful performer and an absolute, like, very, like, a, a professional, you know, absolute professional. So Blackie is amazing. That brings me to one of the first queens I met. Now, I don't know the very first queen I ever met. We'd have to basically go back to Stonehenge. But uh, one of the first queens that ever hired me for a regular job in New York City. And this is like, you know, I'm talking like, it was difficult to find work as a drag entertainer, let alone regular weekly or even daily work as a drag entertainer. And so I was so grateful when Mistress Formica hired me. Now, to give a little context, Mistress Formica worked in, there were different neighborhoods in New York City that um, sort of dictated the style of the party and the the nightlife and the nightclub that you were going to go to. So Mistress Formica primarily worked in the East Village, which at the time was known for like renegade, rock and roll, people, you know, they'd have mohawks and leather. You know, that was kind of the the vibe. And so she fit right in with that. Um, And she was the host of a party called Motherfucker, which uh, eventually she stopped working and I took over as host. So that's how we met initially. And then it wasn't until later when she was doing her uh, weekly party at Don Hills uh, that she asked me to come and work and be the co-host. So I co-hosted with Mistress Formica and Sherry Vine the the show. And it wasn't like a regular drag show. It was a show that with a live band and we would sing covers or original music to you know, to the band, with the band. And, you know, the drunk rock and roll people just, they ate it up. (laughs) Uh, And so I'm just really grateful because I could tell that she, along with Michael T and some other people, sort of saw something in me as a very early queen and said, we want to bestow the duty of being one of New York City's MCs onto Peppermint. And, you know, I'm really grateful for that. Um... You know, Formica has, you know, for those of you who have never seen Wigstock, the uh, documentary, the, um, you should check it out, Wigstock, the movie. Um, anyway, Formica's featured in that. And yeah, uh, has some of the, the best scenes and best performances. 
Um, and one of the like, and one of the, the this really strong opening performance of Aquarius um, from Hair, and I fell in love with the song because of her performance. So please go check out Mr. Formica, an amazing person. My name is Michael Formica Jones, also known as the Mistress Formica. And to be honest, I can't really remember the first time that I met Peppermint or what she was wearing, how she looked. But I can tell you this, she left an impression on me. Such a huge impression that I wanted her to come into my world. I wanted to give her every opportunity to be on stage, to express herself, to have a voice and to shine for the world to see what an incredibly unique and beautiful person she was. The same way that the first queen I met, Linda Simpson, did for me. She gave me a stage and allowed me to shine and grow and change and find myself and have my voice. And I'm so proud of both of them. I'm so happy to still be friends with both of them. And I am glad to see both of them still dominating their lives, teaching others to dominate theirs the same way I try to do. Hey, that's why I called myself the mistress. Love you, Peppermint. And that brings us to the end of this two-part episode on drag history here at Town Hall, a Black queer podcast. We have covered so much ground in these two episodes, exploring the rich and diverse history of drag and its profound impact on Black and queer communities. From the ballroom culture to legendary performers, we have celebrated resilience and artistry of drag throughout the ages. Now, absolutely. Drag has always been a revolutionary act, a means of self-expression and a platform for challenging societal norms. And in our Black queer community, it holds an even more significant place, giving a voice to the marginalized and empowering individuals to embrace their true selves. Now, we have heard some incredible stories about drag performers who paved the way for all of us today. They fought against discrimination and prejudice, pushing boundaries and demanding rec uh, recognition for their art. Hello, their art. Hello. And it is absolutely vital that we honor their legacies and ensure their stories are just never forgotten. That's right, baby. We want to extend our deepest gratitude to all the trailblazers, the performers, the activists, and the unsung heroes who have shaped the world of drag. Your contributions have brought us to where we are today. And we owe you a huge debt of gratitude. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us on this journey through drag history. And we just, we didn't even scratch the surface, but we did a, as much as we could. Uh, and we hope that you've gained a deeper appreciation for the art form and the incredible individuals who continue to make drag such a vibrant and essential part of our culture. Remember, drag is not just about glitz and glamour. It's also about resilience, resistance, and the power to create change. So... Let's support all drag artists, uh, uplift their voices, share their content, give them money, uh, and fight for a world where everyone can express themselves freely, just the way that they want. And with that, we'll be signing off, but don't worry. There's more to come in season two of Town Hall, a Black queer podcast. Stay fabulous, stay fierce, and keep being unapologetically you. Until next time. Special thanks to executive producer Tracy Marquez, senior producer Charlene Westbrook, producer Corey Nixon, and post-producer Amelia Rittaller. Music by LaFemme Bear.